You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 3. Uh, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We started with uh, the church of Ephesus, um, a church that is reminded how important the motivation of love is to the things that we do. So a church that was very active, a church that was very busy, a church that looked very good from the outside, but due to Jesus' omniscience and his ability to see uh, to the inside, he identifies the fact that these things are being done without a, ma- a motivation of love and that if that doesn't change very soon, there will not be a church that continues in Ephesus. And so Jesus calls them to repentance. We looked at the church at Smyrna, a church that uh, is being persecuted, that looks very poor, but Jesus commends them for their faithfulness, commends them for their perseverance, challenges them that it will only get worse before it gets better, but encourages them to persevere through the end. And in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Pergamum and Thyatira, churches that are very similar in that they had allowed um, compromise and toleration within their church, false teachers and false Uh, teachings had been circulating within their church, and it had led to compromise in the area of sexual ethics in Christian liberty. And so you were seeing uh, participation in some of the pagan rituals, uh, the eating of uh, food offered to idols, and it was causing problems within both of those churches. And Jesus calls them to repentance um, as well. And so that brings us to chapter 3 and looking at the church at Sardis. We'll start reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent." If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is one of the two churches that is rebuked and um, addressed in such a way where no commendation is mentioned. There's there's nothing good highlighted by Jesus when referencing this church. He's uh, very concerned about their actions, very concerned about their longevity, um, and seeks to address those things in this letter. And so we're going to take a look at what it means for this church to wake up or die as a church. Our summary sentence for today, a church begins to die when it fails to respond appropriately to the word by living out the gospel through ongoing repentance and faithful obedience. A church begins to die when it fails to respond appropriately to the word by living out the gospel through ongoing repentance and faithful obedience obedience. For our kids, we begin to die spiritually when we stop repenting and obeying. The church begins to die when it fails to respond appropriately to the word by living out the gospel through ongoing repentance and faithful obedience. We're going to look at what Jesus identifies as the reason that he labels this church as a dying church, a church that's on life support, basically. 
And it may not look like the churches that we typically envision when we think about a church that is a dead church in our estimation. Um, This is a church that maybe would have looked very healthy on the outside for those looking in. Um, It's a church that seemingly other churches believe to be alive, right? Like that's their reputation. So, you know, I think it's false for us to think that Sardis was a church of a handful of members who were stuck in a rut and had abandoned all of their evangelistic efforts and were just meeting to meet, right? I mean, those are the type of churches that we would clearly identify and say, dead, like nothing going on there, Uh, there's no life there. But the reputation of this church is that it's very alive. Uh, Nobody seems to be concerned about this church. In fact, this church doesn't seem to be concerned about it themselves. And yet Jesus labels it as a dying church, a church that's on life support. Um, And so we're going to see why he labels it that way. But a church begins to die when it fails to respond appropriately to the word by living out the gospel through ongoing repentance and faithful obedience. This is a church that had had stopped repenting and it stopped being obedient in some areas, and it led Jesus to labeling them as a dying church. We'll try to unpack that today as we get into the text. Some introductory notes. Sardis is uh, a similar church to Ephesus. The, the format's real similar. Some of the wordage is similar. Uh, basically, it's a church just like Ephesus, which has shifted from things that they were previously doing that made them great. Right? Ephesus was that church that we said had a lot of great things on the outside, a lot of things to kind of hang its hat on and say, look at what we're doing. We're very busy. We're very active. And Jesus commends them for their works, right? Like he's going to highlight the church at Sardis as being a church that doesn't really complete the things that they start. Ephesus was doing more probably than Sardis. Jesus commends them for it, but he's addressing the lack of love. They had done things rightly, and they had shifted. Remember, he says, he recall the things that you had previously done. Go back to those things if you want to make this right. Sardis is a similar church. They've got a reputation of being alive, which means probably at some point they were very much alive and very much in God's will and very actively doing the things that they were supposed to be doing, and now they're not. They've shifted, and so uh, they're very similar to Ephesus in that regard, that they are called to go back to some of the things that made them Great. They have a reputation of being alive, but we're nearly dead. I had you guys talking this morning. What does it mean for a church to be dead? And and, and I wanted y'all to discuss that, and I want to get some feedback from you right now. What were some of the things that you um, discussed in your groups as identifiers for what it looks like for a church to be dead? Any thoughts on that? Um, Legalism and duty not motivated by love. Okay, Act, active works that are more uh, driven out of a legalistic mindset that we have to do these things versus more of a loving mindset of we get to do these things. All right, other thoughts on what, what we identify as a church that is dead? All talk and no action. All talk and no action. Uh, Dave made a good point about the, uh, the actual members. Are the members growing in, in spiritual life or are they dying themselves? Okay. Are the individual members growing in their spiritual life or are they dying themselves? Good. Other thoughts on what it means for a church to be dead? So we talk about there being an actual sense of community and openness between the members and not just everyone shows up and then everyone goes home. Okay. An active sense of community within the membership, um, the people that are a part of that church loving each other, caring for each other. 
Any other thoughts? Carter mentioned uh, a de-emphasis on prayer. Okay. Move towards being dead. Okay. A de-emphasis on prayer uh, leads to a church becoming dead. That's um, Tom Rayner, who's um, big in the Southern Baptist world. Um, he wrote a book called Autopsy of a Dead Church, and that was one of the things that he identified in churches that die um, is a church that moves away from praying together as a church. As a tolerance to sin. Okay. Not um, really preaching the gospel anymore. Okay. Tolerance to sin, a failure to push the gospel. As I was thinking in terms of dead church, it led me to, to reevaluate, okay, when does Scripture use that phrase dead in relationship to um, the church culture? And, and it led me back to Ephesians chapter 2 because it describes us prior to our Christian life as being dead ourselves. So in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, it's, it's a real good uh, compact description of the, the effect that the gospel has in the life of an individual, right? That the, the person who needs the gospel is the person that sees themselves dead in their sins. They're walking in the, 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 the mindset or the course of this world. The gospel comes in, the Holy Spirit brings about conviction. God summons us to salvation and we respond to that. We repent of our sins. Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we're now called to good works right? Good works don't save us, so we don't, we don't do good things before salvation. We do good things after salvation. That's our purpose in being saved. And so uh, all the work of Jesus is what saves us, not our own good works, but Jesus does all of that work to save us so that we can then work properly for him. And, and God identifies people who are not in that process, who are not in that salvation relationship as being dead in their sins, right? James chapter 2 is another passage that I went to, specifically verse 26 kind of caps off that chapter that basically says for us to try to uh, claim faith without obedient works that our, 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 our faith is dead, like it's, it's not working the way that it's supposed to, right? Because Ephesians 2 says if we're saved, we're saved to work. And so faith without works is dead. And I think we see this kind of playing itself out in some of the things that you've shared but especially here in the church at Sardis, because they are going to be addressed in the fact that they are not repenting of sin and they're not being obedient like they're supposed to be, and therefore they are dead. They've made compromises. They've made, um, they've made some decisions that do not align with God's word, and it may have resulted in them looking very alive to the community. This may be a church that's growing in numbers but is actually dying from a spiritual standpoint, right? If they make compromises, because here's the thing, and um, 
I don't want to jump too far ahead. There, there, there's no signs of persecution here. There's no signs of false teaching here, right? There's, there's no signs of any outside oppression happening towards this church. Why? Because the enemy must be looking at it and saying, not concerned. Right? We're not concerned about that church, right? Remember the, 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 the other churches, some of them are, are living in Satan's den, basically, right? Like the enemy is, is very conscious and very active towards trying to squash this church, this isn't even on the radar, it seems like, right? Like, they're, they're a church that looks very alive to everybody else, but on the inside, they're dead. They're, they're not where they're supposed to be. There's, there's no condom, uh, commendation for this church. The only positive about this church is that there's a small remnant, a minority that has remained pure. There's no specific cause identified for their sleeping death either, though. There, there's, there's no external source of intimidation. There's no persecution. There's no false teaching that's being blamed here. Right? There's, there's nothing that they need to rid themselves of that's causing this state. Um, what we also find, just as a way of introduction, the, the, the concept of name is very important in this letter. Um, it first off starts off about their reputation, that their name is that they are alive, but they're dead. It then talks about Jesus knowing the names of those that have not soiled their garments. Their names are kept in the book of life. Uh, And eventually, Jesus will confess their names before God the Father and before his angels. So the idea of name and identity and whose name we carry and who we identify with is very important within this church. This church is obviously made up of some that are believers and some that aren't believers. And that's part of the problem is that this church is made up of unbelievers and maybe more unbelievers than believers resulting in its death, that there's not spiritual growth happening, as somebody mentioned, uh, individually. And so it's leading to a death within this church. It's interesting to note, I think, that Jesus takes into account the context of this city to help connect in his writings. First of all, the city of Sardis, it's a city kind of set up on a hill and it's protected all around. And, and it was basically viewed that if you could overthrow Sardis, you've done the impossible. It had only fallen twice in its history up to this point. Um, and both times, there was a, a lax of judgment by the guards, and there was a lack of attention given to some breaks in the wall that allowed individuals to scale the walls and to infiltrate the city, open the gate so that the armies could come in. Um, it was almost impossible to take it. As I was studying um, this week, I was actually watching Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, and they, you know, they retreat to Helm's Deep, and that, 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 that fortress is supposed to be impenetrable, right? Like, this is the safe haven for our people. And that's kind of the picture that I had of the city of Sardis, is that it's set up in such a way to where it cannot fall unless you just go to sleep, basically. And so that's what Jesus says here. He says, church, wake up. If you're not careful, you're gonna fall asleep and you're gonna be overthrown. Your church is gonna die while you're asleep, basically, while you're not paying attention. And so I think it connects with the people of, of Sardis because they're very, uh, they're very aware of the fact that if you're not giving vigilance to a situation, it can be uh, very serious. The religious culture also uh, was one that focused very heavily on death and immortality and the concept of bringing life out of death. 
which is really neat too that Jesus uses that type of terminology to even talk about this church, that they are a church who is dying, but a church that doesn't have to stay that way, a church that can come back to life. He calls them to action, and if they'll do the things that he calls them to do, they too can experience life out of death, what their false uh, cults would have believed um, about uh, reincarnation and that type of thing. Uh, also, wool was a very major part of their industry, which I think also ties into how Jesus talks about their soiled garments in relationship to how they are living their life. So he's not just arbitrarily throwing out these terms. He's, he's connecting with the people and what would have made sense to them, okay? Names, very important in this letter. Uh, their reputation, their, uh, their specific identities that while the church may be dead as a whole, individuals have not soiled their garments, and those names are in the book of life, and Jesus knows them by name, and he will confess them by name if they conquer to the very end. Okay, so that kind of sets the stage and helps us better understand, hopefully, some of the setting around this church at Sardis. Let's jump right into the text. Number one, Christ communicates capable care to this church. Christ communicates capable care to this church. For our kids, the Holy Spirit helps us obey Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us obey Jesus. So if we go back to Revelation chapter 3, again, as we've seen in all the other letters, Jesus begins his addressing of Sardis with a reminder about who he is from that description in chapter 1. He says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, all right? Christ communicates capable care. Remember, Jesus wants them to know specific things about him as he begins to address the problems within the church. So first of all, Jesus reminds us that he can see what others do not see. Jesus reminds us that he can see what others do not see. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He reminds us that he can see past all of the facades, all of the attempts to look good. He sees right into their hearts and says, I know who you really are. You may have every other church uh, confused and, and you may have them all believing the lie that you're alive and that you're doing well, but he says, I can see right into your hearts and I know you're not doing okay. I know there's toleration, I know there's sin, I know there's things that have not been confessed and repented of, and I know that it's leading to individual spiritual death within the church, which is overall leading to a death within the church as well. And Jesus reminds this church that he can see right to the heart of what's going on. He knows the state of this church even better than they do. But secondly, in that description of who he is, he reminds us that he provides the power we need to accomplish what he wants us to do. That's what's, that's what's uh, there, there's tension when we talk about sanctification and our responsibility versus God's responsibility, right? We're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who actually works within us to do those things. And so Jesus is going to address sin within this church, things that they're not doing that they should be doing. Um, but the encouragement right off the bat is that he comes with the seven spirits in his hand. And remember, we'd, we'd said in chapter one that seven is not being used as an individual number for spirits. It's more of an all-encompassing ability of the one spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Jesus is coming with the Holy Spirit and with the authority of angels 
uh, as well. And angels play a role in believers' lives as well. We've talked about that some as well. Jesus says, I'm coming with all of the supernatural help that you need to come back to life as a church. I mean, before he even gets into the instructions about what they need to do, he is assuring them right off the bat that I come with the supernatural help to help you. Like I've got, I've got all of the resources that you need to accomplish what I'm gonna ask you to do. And that's huge because as, as believers who are still fighting sin and we're still indwelt with the flesh and we're waiting for Jesus to come back and give us new bodies where sin and death is dealt with completely, at times on a daily basis, it may look impossible to be obedient to Jesus. That, that our, 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 our flesh and our spirit are waging war against each other and we're trying to say yes and we're trying to do what we, what, what we know we're supposed to do according to the word and we may be uh, not experiencing the victory that we want to experience. And Jesus is reminding us that the supernatural power, the power that raised him from the dead is accessible to us to raise us back to life as well from the state that we may have fallen into. He says, I can bring this church back and I come with the supernatural help to do so. Jesus comes with supernatural power to help enable their obedience once again. In order to carry out their call from the risen Lord to live out the gospel, they need the Spirit's life-giving power which raised Jesus from the dead to revive them from their spiritual stupor. The implication for us right off the bat in this, in this uh, introduction is that Jesus' love for his investment the church, the, the, the big picture church. Jesus loves his investment so much that it leads him to act at all cost to bring it to completion. He is invested in the church, he has started a work in the church and he will bring that to completion. And he will do whatever necessary and he will use whatever resources necessary to do this. And I think even the end of this letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches as a reminder that Jesus desires to change the course of this church as he does all of the churches, right? Like he's not okay with them continuing down their pattern of sin. He wants, he wants to do everything necessary to bring them out of that state. And it ought to be a reminder to us that individually, he started a work in us. He will bring it to completion and he will do whatever necessary to make sure that happens. And he has all the supernatural resources needed to enable us to be obedient to him in the ways that he calls us to be. I think that's huge for us to even start with that before we even look at the state of this church and what's going on within it. That Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to help us be obedient to him. All right, secondly, Christ confronts the sleeping dead here. He describes this church as being asleep and being dead and needing to be awakened. For our kids, Christians are supposed to repent of sins even after they are saved. Look what Jesus says. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Strong warnings from Jesus, strong rebuke from Jesus about what this church has been doing. All right, the problem here, the problem is that this church has relaxed in such a way the radical demands of the Christian faith in a pagan culture where they're not, they're not gaining the attention of the pagans or the Jews, right? The Jews aren't trying to attack this church. 
the, the pagan culture is not trying to attack this church because seemingly they have relaxed the radical demands that it means to follow Jesus in such a way where they've just kind of leveled it out and, and become like the culture. They and others are unaware of their current state. They don't seem to be aware that they're dying. And again, when, when, we, when we talk about well, what does it mean for a church to die, a lot of you probably pictured specific churches that you're familiar with. Maybe churches that you came from, churches that you know in the community. And that's probably not the first churches that Jesus would identify as dying churches because the reputation of the churches that he's identifying are ones that look alive to everybody, right? Like we're, we're picking out churches that, that just look very dead on the outside. But Jesus says, no, the ones that look alive on the outside may be the ones that are actually dying on the inside. That there's become such a compromise that, again, may lead to an increase in membership because you're not, you're not placing demands on me. I, I can come and be a part of this and do some things but not have to maybe give up some things I'm not called to repentance, maybe. And so I can come and be a part of this fellowship and participate. And, and I have this long, long time frame before you're ever going to address anything in my life. You may know some churches like that. Churches that, that allow anybody and everybody to come and stay for as long as they want. And there's very little addressing of sin in their life. There's very little call to repentance in their life. And some churches are built upon that. Some churches are built upon that. They build themselves on the mindset that come as you are and stay as long as you need to. And if you ever decide to be different, great, we're here to help you. But if not, just keep staying. And they attract people that way and they grow their churches and they grow big buildings that way. And that's not the case for all churches, right? There's big churches out there with great big memberships that are calling people to repentance, I had the privilege of going to John MacArthur's church one time and I went on a Sunday night and I've never seen a crowd as big as I saw on a Sunday night at John MacArthur's church. And it was awesome because he said, they were, they were, talking, about, uh, they were talking about some stuff with their deacons and he said, can I have all our deacons stand up? And I mean, probably it felt like half the church stood up. People that were qualified to be deacons that had been given tasks to do within the church. I mean, it was a thriving growing church. And for those of you that know uh, John's ministry enough to know, you know that within that church that you're being called to repent and called to turn to Jesus constantly. So it can certainly be done in a right way and it produced big buildings and lots of numbers. But there's a lot of churches that are doing it the other way where they're, 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 they're uh, compromising with culture in such a way that it doesn't cause any great demands to be placed on people that are coming. And this church, in some ways, has soiled their garments, and we'll talk in a minute about what that means. And it's caused them to be a dead church, or a church that is on the verge of dying. There's a call to action, and Jesus gives six things that I think we can identify here that they need to do. Six things that this church is called to do if they are to awake from this sleep, if they are to come back from the death here. First of all, they're called to wake up. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up. Essentially, he's calling them to assess the situation and realize the reality. See, that they can't change things if they don't see that there's a need for a change. Jesus is saying, don't fall like your city has fallen twice. Don't go to sleep on this and think that there's no concerns. You need to have guards out. You need to make sure your walls are protected. 
Your, church, your, your, your city fell because you didn't do that. And he says, wake up because there's a problem and you're oblivious to it. As we look at these churches, and, and just to kind of give you a heads up, as we finish this, we're going we're gonna to try to evaluate our church as well in light of these seven churches. And we're going to try to identify things that need to be fixed and corrected and repented of even potentially within our church. But before that can even happen, there has to be a call to wake up and to potentially identify errors within the church that need to be corrected. Otherwise, we just start throwing out things that need to get fixed, and and it falls on deaf ears because nobody sees that this is an issue, right? And so before Jesus really gets into what they need to do, he simply says, wake up and realize you think you're alive, other churches think you're alive, but you're not. You're a dying church, okay? So wake up, assess the situation, and realize the reality. Don't fall like your city. Secondly, strengthen what remains. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Jesus identifies the fact that there's enough left within this church of what led to their great reputation of life to fix the situation, right? Like Jesus isn't putting this stamp on this church that says dead and we're done with it. It's more this idea that the church is mostly dead, mostly dead. If you've seen the Princess Bride movie, you know there's a scene where that the man in black gets all of his energy sucked out and he's laying on this bed and and the wife and this guy are arguing about whether the guy's dead or not. And, And he finally concludes, no, he's just mostly dead, right? Like he can still be saved, he can still be salvaged, but it's gonna take a lot of work because he's mostly dead. And that's where this church is. It's mostly dead, but Jesus says, hey, there's enough of a heartbeat. There's enough of life's blood within this church still that remains that it can be saved, right? He says, strengthen what remains and this church can come back to life. This church can come back and align itself with the reputation that it's had for a long time of being a church that's alive, okay? So he says, wake up, strengthen what remains and then complete your works. He says, I've, found, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Things seem to be uh, done half-heartedly and not to completion within this church. And, and you say, well, what works are we talking about? Well, some of the works that have been identified in the other churches, works of love and faith and service and endurance, the question I kind of wrote down in my notes is, are we as a church here at Sovereign Hope doing things half-heartedly. The things that we're striving to do as a church, the things that we have kind of made the the structure and the foundation of our church and how we seek to love and how we seek to serve, how we seek to have a presence in our community, are we doing those things with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strength? Are we seeking to love God through those avenues by loving other people and serving other people? Or do we do those half-heartedly? I was contacted by a church in Sonoy this week and the pastor wanted to talk to me about some things regarding our church. And one of the first things that he says, he says, I love the website of your church and I love all of the things that you're doing that are described on your website. And immediately I went back to the discussion we had a couple years ago where is the website an accurate depiction of what you really are as a church? And so from his perspective, the reputation of our church precedes itself. He can read and says, you guys love theology. Uh, he says, you guys are, are active and serving and you love each other and you're providing fellowship opportunities. And he's talking about all these things. And I'm like, and I hope those things are, are, I hope if he were to come, he would feel the same way and not feel like we duped him with our website. Like, I hope that he would really feel like 
Yes, it, it aligns. It measures the reputation that you're trying to put out there is consistent with what you really are as a church. And if it's not, then there needs to be changes, right? There needs to be things that are fixed. But that's the, that's the reputation that we want, what we've portrayed on our website. There are people that would even look at it and say these things must be true because it's on their website. But we also know that there may be some things that we're doing half-heartedly, that we're not really all in in the way that we function as a church. And that seems to be what was happening in this church. They, they weren't really completing things. They were starting things, attempting things, but they couldn't really get buy-in from people to finish it out and really make it good. And Jesus says, complete those things, right? Like, like Ephesus was at least commended for their works. Now they lacked love behind it, but at least they were completing things. They were doing things. They were active He tells this church, he says, you're just kind of half-heartedly doing things. You're not finishing things. You're not doing things well. Strengthen what remains. Complete your works. And then he says to remember what you've received and heard. And so Jesus is going to tie it back to the word, which is part of our summary sentence, that we start to die as a church when we don't respond appropriately to the word. Because Jesus tells them to remember, verse 3, remember then what you received and what you heard. And those two words are used to differentiate between the receiving of traditions that were passed down from the apostles and then those things that they specifically heard within their church that was kind of uh, fresh teaching for them. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection, but he says, I'm passing along to you those things that I have received, things that were given to me from other people that were with Jesus. So there was traditions that were being handed out across the the church culture because the apostles were, uh, were with Jesus and they were starting to die off. And so these traditions, these, these um, creeds or these basically statements of faith were being given to these churches. And then they had regular teaching, the, uh, the, the teaching of the scriptures within their church. And Jesus says, hey, remember those things. The, the, the key to coming back to life is to remember the things that you've been taught and to act upon them. Recall the truth that has been passed along to you and act upon it because he says, remember it. And then what does he tell them to do? He tells them to keep it. Keep it. Hang on to it. Don't forget it now that you've remembered it and repent where you failed to keep it. Right? He says, you need to complete your works. How do you do that? You need to remember what you've been taught and how you've been taught to live out these things and to complete these works. Remember what you've been taught. Hang on to it, keep it, obey it, and repent where you failed to do so. Confess and admit your failure to do it. The idea of repentance here is an awakening, a return to the consciousness about the reality that they're in. They need to confess and admit their failures. And this is, again, we we talked about this a little bit last week. Like, I think it would be a mistake for Sardis to try to, try to, you know, rise up and, and do this without the repentance part, right? Like, it's not a call to just get active and start doing things. There's an, there's an, a, an admittance that has to take place, a, a self-awareness that we have missed the mark and we have failed at some things, and we need to own it. We need to possess it and own our failures and turn from those things and not just try to cover it up with more works. Jesus doesn't remove the call to repent here. So he gives them some things to do. Wake up, strengthen what remains, complete your works, remember what you received and heard, keep those things, obey those things, and repent where you failed. I think repent, the repent part, the last thing, is maybe the key to the whole thing of moving from death to life. 
Repentance is such, as an, is such an important key to going from death to life. I mean, that's what happens in the gospel when we come to salvation, right? That repentance is where we transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I love the picture, though, of this resurrection-type mentality with repentance in uh, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 um, the story of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead. I want my stuff and I want to take it and go live the way I want to live. Kind of runs off and, and enjoys, the, uh, enjoys the things that were given to him by his dad versus enjoying his dad, right? And so he goes and squanders it and realizes he's made a mistake. Wants to come home and, and if nothing else, just be a servant, right? And so he comes home and he begins to confess. In verse... Uh, 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. But here's what triggers the, the celebration, the real celebration, the party and the, uh, the, the hallelujah type feel. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That doesn't doesn't happen if the son comes back with a rebellious attitude still, right? Like if he comes back and just wants to rub it in his dad's face, let's say that the son had gone off and been successful. And then he comes back and basically just wants to rub it in daddy's face. Dad's not throwing a celebratory party for him, right? Like my son's still lost. My son's still not found. My son still doesn't get it. But the son comes back and says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to put on these clothes. And dad says, no, clothe him up right? My son has come back from the dead and he is alive. And that's what we see here in this Sardis picture, right? The people that conquer, they get clothed in the end, right? They get white garments that represent the purity of of the work of Jesus Christ. We sang about it this morning through justification, right? We sang about the, the idea of justification that we are now, we're now viewed as perfect. We're now viewed as holy because Jesus has been perfect for us. That, that repentance is what triggers it. And repentance is the key for moving from death to life. The implication for us is that failure to act upon God's revealed will may bring about the thieving presence of Jesus. Jesus goes on to tell them if they don't do these things, that there's a consequence. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus threatens to come upon these people, much like the people snuck into their city to to cause it to fall in their history. And this isn't talking about the second coming of Jesus, right? There's there's passages in Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, where Jesus talks about his return as being like a thief coming in the night. But this is not referencing the second coming. How do you know that? Because this coming is conditional, right? Right? If this church doesn't repent, then Jesus will come like a thief upon them. If they do repent, they don't have to worry about Jesus coming upon them. So to think that we could somehow keep the second coming from happening would be heresy, right? So 
We're not talking about the second coming here. We're talking about a pre-coming where Jesus would say, I will come upon you and you alone, your church only, and bring judgment upon your church for your lack of repentance if you don't wake up. And that's New Testament, right? Like that's not the God of the Old Testament that sometimes we want to think. That's how God operated in the Old Testament. God doesn't show up in the New Testament that way because Jesus died on the cross and, and now God is nice in the New Testament. Right? Same God of the Old Testament, same God of the New Testament. Right? And, God, and God forgives us of our sins in the Old Testament and in the New Testament because Jesus dies on the cross and comes back to life. But Jesus constantly calls his people to holiness, constantly calls them to repentance, and says, if you don't do it, then I will discipline you like a loving father. And I'll come like a thief in the night here. And I will do it when you don't expect it. Right? And um, so it's referring to a potential historical judgment upon this specific church, and it's meant to create urgency to act because the time frame is real ambiguous here, right? It's not, all right, I'm gonna give you two weeks. Two weeks, and if you don't get it figured out in two weeks, then I'm gonna come and bring judgment. He just says, if you don't get this figured out, I'm gonna come, and you, and you just don't know when. I mean, if I'm, if I'm the pastor of that church, if I'm, if I'm a deacon at that church, an elder at that church, if I'm a member of that church, and somebody shows up and says, hey, got a letter from John, he wants us to read this aloud this Sunday morning, and we're reading about Ephesus, and we're reading about Smyrna, and we're like, man, we can't wait till we get to Sardis because we are such an alive church. We are awesome. And then he starts to read about us, and it's like, oh, man, we're not alive. Like, we're dead. And then he reads this part about, if you don't get this fixed, I will come like a thief. If I'm the pastor, I'm saying, and we're not leaving at 12. We're not going to lunch until we figure out what we're doing wrong and how to make it right. Because I can't take a chance that we get a week or two. I can't take a chance that we get a month or a year to get this figured out before he comes. Because he can come at any point, any time. And we've got to take it seriously. This call to wake up and this call to repent is not something that we just sit on and wait and try to flesh it out whenever we get time to do it. Jesus says, we've got to get it right now because I could come at any time. It's meant to create urgency. Number three, Christ commands or commends the walking pure. So you got the sleeping dead who are asleep and they're dying and they don't really get it and realize it. And then you've got this group that is, is pure and they're the minority. They're, they're not the majority here. They're, they're the minority because Jesus says there's, there's a few of you that are still okay that haven't given in to this. It says in verse four, yet you have still a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. For our kids, God views Christians as perfect because Jesus is perfect. And you gotta be sitting there if you're a, if you're a member of the church at Sardis and you're, maybe you're hearing this and, and your heart is leaping because you're like, finally somebody else sees this, right? Like finally somebody else is calling us out for what we are. I've been talking to people. I've been trying to help our leadership see this and we've been missing it. And boom, now the apostle John is, is through, the, through the words of Jesus, letting us know that we're missing it. What an encouragement it would have been to be sitting there and know that Jesus is numbering you in the faithful, right? Like, like you've been aware of it. You're not oblivious to it. You know the church is dying. And Jesus says, hey, I know there's some of you there that get this already. I know there's some of you there that, that don't need this message. You've already realized this message. 
He says, you're worthy of your calling. You will walk with me in white. It would have been an extreme encouragement to them because they may be working so hard to try to fix this and have felt helpless at times. Jesus identifies these people in a couple of different ways. First of all, they've not soiled their garments. Just kind of a gross phrase there, soiled garments. Um, having kids that are still learning the, the concept of the potty, I uh, understand what soiled garments conjures up in my mind, right? And, and Jesus says, a lot of you have soiled your garments. You've, you've, you've made yourselves dirty, and some of you have guarded and protected yourself from that. And, and hopefully that kind of leaves you saying like, well, have I been soiling my garments or are my garments clean, right? Like, uh, do I need to change the clothes or are my clothes okay? Hopefully you're asking your question, what does this mean? Um, It means that they had not compromised their walk with pagan culture or idolatrous practices. In Revelation chapter 14, we get the same wordage, and I think it gives us a better idea of what it means to soil our garments. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb Wherever he goes, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The, uh, the same word for soiled, soiled garments, is the same word for defiled in verse 4. Who are these people that are in heaven? Who are these people that have been redeemed? It is these who have not soiled themselves with women. It is these who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. And we'll learn more about this as we get into Revelation and the compromises that were being made with the state and with religion and the pagan culture. But there was a group of people that had kept themselves clean from that. They had not given into the pressures of the culture. They had kept living the radical Christian faith. And they had not compromised with culture. They had not let culture infiltrate their life. And they had stayed pure from it. And it says they followed the lamb wherever he went. Right, So that, that idea of obediently responding to the word of God, that's what it looked like to not soil their garments. And Jesus addresses them and says, there's a few of you that have done this faithfully. You've not compromised and you've remained obedient. And the Bible tells us their garments are white because of the work of Christ. Right? They're not just given white garments because they did a really good job of being good people. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 13, we're going to learn in the future says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white, not in their good works, but in the blood of the lamb. Like, let's don't, let's don't think that these, this handful of the people in Sardis are just really great Christians that do a lot of good things and have cleaned up their garments and made them white because of their good works, right? They have dipped those things in the blood of the lamb. 
right? As we, as we work through this week uh, and we look towards the crucifixion and celebrating the resurrection next Sunday, our salvation is made possible because of what happened on the cross, right? The only way that we can be made perfect is that Jesus lived a perfect life for us. Our good works don't get us there. And, and that's the picture we see in Revelation is that these guys are considered worthy. They're considered walking around in white because they've dipped themselves in the blood of Jesus. Not because they, not because they did a really good job and, and, and worked really hard and did a lot of good things. No, because they came to Jesus and said, we need to be cleansed. Our garments are soiled, right? Like we need to be forgiven. We need to repent and we need to be, we need to be cleansed and changed. That's exactly what Jesus does through his work. The blood of the lamb enables us to be white. Jesus says they've not soiled their garments, but secondly, they walk in a manner worthy of their calling. He says, you got a handful of people there. They've not soiled themselves. And they will walk with me. Why? Because they are worthy, is what he says. Back in Revelation chapter three, they walk with me in white for they are worthy. We don't have time to look at these passages, but uh, I encourage you to write them down. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, uh, Philippians 1, 27, Colossians 1, 10, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. Ephesians 4, 1 was the first one that I mentioned. We will look at that one. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. This idea that there's a, a calling that we've, we've been have placed on our life and we're to walk in a way that we're worthy of that calling, that we're to align ourselves with the obedience to our King Jesus that we're called to, right? Today's Palm Sunday where Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a king and was acknowledged in such a way and that's the call upon us as, as the gospel places to us is that we obey the gospel as we come, we repent, we turn and we acknowledge him as our king and we give our lives to him. And that's what this church needed to realize once again, that, that some had been doing this. Some were walking in a manner worthy of their calling. Those other verses were Philippians 1.27, Colossians 1.10, and 1 Thessalonians 2.12. And when we walk in such a way that we're worthy of that gospel call upon our life, Hebrews says we are no longer worthy of this world, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about all the great heroes of the faith who had expressed their faith through countless ways, and it had led to a lot of their deaths. It says in verse 38 of Hebrews 11, of whom the world was not worthy. Keeps us separate from the world when we live this way. Implication is a dying church is guilty of compromising with culture and neglecting God's commands. This ought to be a reminder to us that serious spiritual decline in a church is possible because it happened at Sardis. A dying church is guilty of compromising with culture and neglecting God's commands. Number four, Christ confesses the conquerors. For our kids, if you want to walk with Jesus in heaven, you have to walk with Jesus now. Christ confesses the conquerors. If you want to walk with Jesus in heaven, you have to walk with Jesus now. We'll wrap up with this in Revelation 3 again. Jesus, as he does in all these letters, puts at the end of his rebuke the hope and the promise of what's in store for those who respond. He 
says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First of all, the conquerors will inherit white garments. It says they will be clothed in white garments in the future. Why? Because they've walked with him in purity and in a worthy manner here on earth. They've been faithful to walk with Jesus here on earth, and so it only makes sense that they would walk with him in heaven. Jesus says, you've been worthy here. You've been doing and obeying me and following me. Absolutely, you're going to follow me all the way to heaven, and you're going to walk with me. You're going to be in fellowship with me, and you'll be clothed in white. An aspect of purity that's promised to the the conquerors. Number two, the conquerors are guaranteed eternal life. Our names are secure in the book of life forever is what we're told here, that we'll never have our names blotted out. Um, we, we looked in, uh, ex- in an extensive way at the book of life about a year and a half ago, and so we're not going to go into that. I intentionally left that out. I'd love for you to go back and listen to that sermon. I'm going to post those notes this week if you just want to kind of thumb back through. We talked extensively about the book of life and, and what we believe Scripture teaches about the book of life. Um, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus talks about rejoicing to his disciples, rejoicing because their names are written in heaven, right? And so there's this book of life, um, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, both talk about our names being written there before the foundations of the world. Right, so, so we've always been secure in Christ. Our salvation has always been guaranteed. And, and Jesus says, I'll never blot the names out of that book. Um, it's not a threat that some names are erased, but instead an assurance that names won't be erased. These conquerors have a guaranteed eternal life, a reward in the future. And then lastly, the conquerors are acknowledged by their Savior. Jesus says, I'm going to give out white robes to these people. And I'm never going to blot their name out of the book of life. And I will confess their names before my Father and before his angels. Our allegiance to Christ, even in the face of persecution, reveals his allegiance to us. Matthew 10, verse 28 through 32, and Luke 12, 4 through 8, both talk about that if we'll confess Jesus before men, he will confess us before his Father. And if we don't, then he will not as well. The idea there is that if we're truly aligned with Jesus, that we will persevere through persecution, even if it means to the point of death, like some of the heroes we've seen here already that have died, that have been thrown into prison, that have weathered those storms, that if we're truly aligning ourselves with Jesus, we will persevere through persecution. And when that happens, Jesus will confess us in heaven as being one of his. And that's part of the the promise here is that he will align himself with us in front of everybody. Which probably means that in some way the church had been failing to confess Jesus like they should. And Jesus calls this point out. Last implication, what we hope for in the future is intrinsically linked to how we live now. What we hope for in the future is intrinsically linked to how we live now just a fancy way of saying, why would somebody think they get to walk with Jesus in heaven if they don't want to walk with him here, right? Like it blows my mind for people to claim Jesus and then have a life that looks so contrary to his teachings and they don't see a disconnect there. 
hey, I can't wait to get to heaven and be with Jesus. Man, I hate what he wants me to do down here, though, and so I'm going to do things the way I want to do down here, but wow, we're really going to be on the same page when we get to heaven. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, to align ourselves with Jesus in heaven is to align ourselves with him now. They can't be disconnected. If we're going to hope in a king that comes back that demands our allegiance, how can we really be hoping in that if we don't align ourselves with his teachings now? Two points for us to ponder, and then we'll, we'll hit our application question. Um, and, and maybe we'll come back to these because I know we don't have time to discuss them today, but um, maybe you can leave and we can just have three application questions. Number one, what are some early warning signs that our church is beginning to die? What are some things that we need to look out for as our church, um, hopefully that we're not currently dying, but that would help us to know if we ever got to that point that we're on the verge of death? Um, when should a person try to revive a diving, dying church, and when should a person leave a dying church? I do want to touch on this one. Um, did anybody come up with a, with a great answer in their group to contribute right now? I'll tell you if it's a great answer or not, <laughs> if there's any questions. <laughs> anybody, have, anybody have any, any good thoughts from that, that discussion? No pressure. Like All the answers will be good. Yeah. I, I think a person should leave a uh, church, a dying church, when the gospel is not clear. Okay. When the gospel is not clear. Yep. We sort of mentioned that a person should leave a dying church after they've attempted to revive it. Yep. When, when, when you've attempted to revive it to the best of your abilities and have, have, have failed to do so, then, they're, then, they, then you're moving in the direction of being released. And I would, I would go a step further in, in clarifying what that means, is that if you've gone to the leadership of the church and confessed your concerns about the state of the church and said, I'm here, I'm, I'm not telling you that I'm frustrated about this and I'm leaving, because at that point it's too late. Now you're just informing the leadership of the church that, hey, I have a problem with this and hope you can fix it, but I'm not gonna be a part of the fixing, Right? There, there needs to be a time and a place where, where if there's a, a legit concern about the state of the church and the possibilities of us moving in a direction that's unhealthy, that there's a conversation with the leadership of the church. And if you get rejected by the leadership of the church, like there's, there's not a willingness to hear and there's not a willingness to respond and there's not a heart and desire to fix at whatever cost, at that point, you, you've, you've done about all you can do because the leadership is the one that will have to lead the church in the corrective direction. And if the leadership doesn't see it and the leadership's not willing to hear it, then there's not much else you can do, right? So um, there, there's, a, there's somebody uh, within this community, a fellow church planter, um, and we talk about our church and his church and, and the experiences of both. And he says, since his church started, He's had over 100 families come and stay for six months or longer and leave. And that's within the last 10 years. 100 plus families that have come, stayed for six months, and then leave. And he says, every one of them come to tell me why they're leaving. And they've allowed their concerns to get to a point where they won't do anything else with them, but they've never come to address those concerns, to help get those fixed by partnering with that person, right? Like the way that we could leave a church and be released from a church is to have gone to the leadership and tried to fix it and, and have not been able to get through to the leadership. Not coming to just inform and say, hey, hope you fix it, but to come and say, hey, I wanna be a part of the fixing. 
Here's a concern that I see that maybe you're blinded to because, right, this church thought they were alive and they were dead. And maybe we get to a point as a church where our leadership thinks we're alive and you realize now we're, we're dying. That you come, and, and I, can, I, can, I can assure you that, that we as elders and, and then in his extension through the deacons, like we want nothing more than to serve this church and to respond to concerns that we hear about. And most of you know us well enough to know that when we hear about a concern, it's all we can think about until we can fix that concern. We don't dismiss concerns. We don't put them on the back burner. We want to fix and serve and do whatever we can to heal when we know that there's an issue. And so that's, that's what I hope you find here at this church is that even if we get to a point where we're dying in some capacities, that we are willing as leadership to help fix as we're made aware of things that maybe we're even blinded to. Application question. Am I personally, as an individual in this church, am I personally infusing life or sucking life from our church based on my personal walk with Jesus and my personal investment into others? Am I personally infusing life into this church? Because as an individual, I'm growing spiritually. I'm uh, responding to the word. I'm personally growing. I'm obeying and I'm repenting. And, and that's leading me to personally invest into others as I seek to love and to serve. Am I infusing life into this church or am I a life sucker from this church? Am I not growing spiritually? Am I not uh, responding to the word? Am I not fighting sin? Am I not investing into others? Am I part of the crowd that's kind of doing things half-heartedly when we try to do things as a church? Or am I all in trying to infuse life into whatever it is we're doing as a church? That's our application question for today. Are you the, the life infuser or the life sucker within this church? And our family worship questions. Is there anything we would like to be different about our church? And then number two, what can we do to help create that difference within our church? Is there anything that we, as, as a family within this church, would say, man, I wish this was different about our church. This is a, a flaw of our church. This is a, a hiccup in our church. This is, this is a, uh, a misstep within our church. This is something that our church could do better. But not just identifying the things that could be done better, also identifying what could we as a family or as an individual, as you consider these questions, what could we do to help be the difference within our church in that area? We'll unpack that more um, as we look at our remaining churches and then as we get into the, the application Sunday where we look more at our church and things that maybe need to be addressed within our church and fixed and corrected and hopefully allow Jesus to speak to us in the same way. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you and thank you that you are a God who cares immensely for his investment. And Father, we know that you would have been very just uh, to the people at Sardis to come as a thief without warning and to judge them for their sin and their lack of repentance and their half-heartedness and uh, for the fact that they had allowed their church to die in a community that needed a light, in a community that needed a church that was alive with the gospel. They failed to be that beacon of hope for a time. And God, we're thankful that you loved them enough to send a warning message. You revealed some things to them and you challenged them to respond to that revealed will. Father, as, as a church that's not receiving a direct letter to Sovereign Hope this morning, but a church that's allowed to read the letters to these other churches, help us to respond as best we can to that revealed will to those churches. God, help us to wake up in any areas that we need to wake up in. Father, as leadership, if there's areas that we need to wake up in, that you would, you would wake us up. 
before you have to come and, and discipline us. God, I pray that you'd use members within our church if needed to wake us up to things that may be missed that are causing our church to be less than alive. Father, I pray that we would repent of anything that, that comes to our minds, things that we're personally responsible for, areas that we've neglected as individual members of this church, ways that we have not fully invested ourselves. God, I pray that we would be awoken to those things and that we would repent and, um, and make changes and, and, and do the things necessary to, to be worthy of the calling that you've given to us. Father, we're thankful that we can be clothed in white robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. God, we're thankful that as Ephesians tells us, you have saved us not by our good works, but by the good works of Jesus Christ. God, we celebrate that. Uh, we remember that this week as we, um, as we remember the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, that, that it's Jesus and his all-encompassing work that makes it possible for our names to be written in the book of life. Father, we want nothing more than for you to confess us one day as we stand before before so many in heaven, angels, and before you as our Father, we want Jesus to confess us. So God, help us to be faithful. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to be faithful. Help us to lean upon him. And, and God, I pray that you would uh, just allow us to respond to your word through the, um, the enlightening that the Holy Spirit brings to us, that you would convict us, recall to us the things that we've uh, been taught as, as you've instructed us that the Holy Spirit is there for and there to do. We thank you that you come with the supernatural resources to enable us to do the things that you call us to be. Pray that we would be those things and um, help us to continue to grow as a church. And uh, Father, help us to remain humble as a church and to follow your leading and to repent when we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.